Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Everybody, this is a drawing reel 473. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got one of the legendary figures from our, I guess at this point, our brother podcast from across the pond, <laughs> Film 89. We've got the Welsh bluesman himself, Steve Amos, here. I guess you, we haven't had you by yourself since we tackled Day for Night a while back, but all kinds of crazy things have been going on at Film 89. Sky had a baby and so on and so forth, but Steve, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you very much. I, um, I was looking at our Skype record earlier on, and it was 11 months ago yesterday that we recorded for Day for Night. Well, that, that, is, uh, that is far too long. So apart from Sky repopulating the planet, what has been going on over the hallowed halls of Film 89? Well, the, um, <laughs> Sky repopulating the planet has been something we've all been discussing. Um, well, recently, um, I haven't had much time to do a lot of writing, uh, but um, the last podcast I did was with Sky and the great Bill Scurry. We talked Chinatown. Very nice. Got many fucking rules. Oh, it's fantastic. Fantastic. And I think that's going to be the last one for a while, whilst, um, you know, to allow Sky to get some sleep, because apparently he is up quite late in the nights at the moment. But, I mean, shit, if you want to keep the podcast going, I will gladly hop on and rant and rave with you anytime if you need guests for Film 89. Oh, I'll definitely mention it to um, Sky. I've got um, a wonderful opportunity at the moment, because my wife and kids are away. So I've had three weeks of just, well, apart from decorating and refurbishing, I've been watching a film a night, which for me is legendary, because normally I can't do that. So I've managed to cram in, I think, about 22 films so far. Beautiful. So, you know, I'm quite happy with that. Any highlights? Anything that absolutely knocked you on your ass? Well, as we discussed uh, a little bit earlier, I mean, I watched um, Get Carter recently, which I have to admit made me feel dirty and grubby. Um, in a I've, good way or a bad way? <laughs> well, I, I think something like that. Yeah, it depends on uh, it depends on your mood at the time. Uh, I don't think I was ready for that. You know, although well, I think 
there's a cool kind of undercurrent of down and dirty, savage British cop and gangster thrillers. And I cannot pretend to be an expert, but for people who are interested in that subgenre, there's an audio commentary that Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino did for. Um, oh shit! What was what was Edgar Wright's second movie? The one where they play the cops in the small town. Um, uh, Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. They did a commentary track for Hot Fuzz, and they go down the deepest, darkest rabbit hole of obscure British crime th- thrillers. And even Edgar Wright was th- saying things like, you know quite a lot. <laughs> I don't know if any Brits know as much about these crime thrillers as you do, but it's an area where I want to learn a lot more. Uh, Hot Fuzz is a fantastic movie. I have to admit, though, that I am very slow with catching up on a lot of them. A friend of mine is a big fan, so he lent me... Uh, uh, get Carter recently, and he also lent me uh, The Long Good Friday, which is a phenomenal film. Hell yeah. I really love that film. So I, I do believe it's it's um, the mood you're in sometimes, because Get Carter, if you are in a, if you want a nice, light, fluffy kind of entertainment, yeah, not that, is not, watch, watch, that is watch, not... Watch, watch Mike Hodge's later movie, Flash Gordon, because Mike Hodge's, who did Get Carter, also did Flash Gordon, but he also did Croupier, like in 98 or 99. So he he's a cool, underrated filmmaker in a lot of ways. But I love that line in Get Carter when Michael Caine says, you know, I always wonder what your eyes looked like. Piss holes in the snow. And I'm just like, yeah, this movie's mean. <laughs> Every once in a while you want to see something mean. And yeah, Get Carter's as mean as they get. And it's got that killer score and that great opening credit sequence on the train. And yeah, I just, I love everything about it. There is one moment, though, I think, which is a highlight of Michael Caine's acting career when he's in the bed and he's watching the um, projection for the first time and he realises that it's his niece that's on the film. He doesn't have to say anything. You know exactly what, what's on that screen. You know who's on the screen. I think that is a highlight of his career. Yeah, and it's also, when you think about the 70s and you think about Charles Bronson doing all these tough guy movies and Clint Eastwood doing all these tough guy movies, when you think of tough guys, you don't ordinarily think, oh, Michael Caine, he's a tough guy. But goddamn, and Get Carter, he's just as mean and just as surly and just as hardcore as any of those 70s tough guy actors as you care to mention. He's like the Terminator in some <laughs> 100%. In, in right, a 60s well, so, suit. <laughs> well, before we started recording, I was picking your brain about a variety of different uh, British franchises and films, and none of which you apparently appeared to like. So for American listeners who are interested, what folks from Wales, my, the, who are the filmmakers on your island over the last 20, 30, 40 years that you really point to as some of your favorite homegrown directors? Oh, um, I can't really say. Um, because, the you know, Edgar Wright obviously is a fantastic um, filmmaker. Although, you know, Baby Driver, I wasn't a big fan of. Um, but the, you know, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. In fact, I used to work in a bank and I used to be wearing a short sleeve shirt and a tie, and somebody came up to me once and said, "You're Shaun of the Dead." Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> I, like, oh. I, I took it as a compliment. I, did, I, you know. did you on purpose leave like a pen in your front pocket to let it bleed a little red ink? <laughs> <laughs> I should have done that. I should have done that. But um, um, no, I'm, I can't say I follow anybody from over here that much. It's not interesting because uh, uh, I feel like in, in any given era from the. 30s up till now y'all have always got a handful of directors that i really enjoy and i know he's not necessarily considered to be the most um i guess 
politically correct filmmaker out there, but I really do enjoy Matthew Vaughn. I love the fact that Matthew Vaughn very seems to be deliberately like taking a stick and poking people in the ribs, knowing that his humor upsets people. And he just kind of laughs in <laughs> delight when he says or does something in his movies that make people scream in outrage. I'll, I'll never forget some of the reviews of the first Kingsman movie when they're talking about how he ruined a perfectly good movie by having like that butt sex joke at the very end of the film. And when I first saw it, I was in Aspen had, and with a bunch of editables in my system, just tripping balls. And I just screamed with laughter. I was howling. I was rolling in the aisles. So I just appreciate that somebody out there wanted to do R-rated genre franchise entertainment that makes no concessions other than those that uh, he wants to make. Like he, He's telling the stories he wants to make, and I like how he's carving out his own little universe and his own little world. So I'm really looking forward to the Kingsman prequel coming out early next year. Yeah, I, I appreciate what he's doing. It's just uh, I remember watching the Kingsman and thinking... You know, this is this is okay. This, is, but, but then as soon as it got to the scene in the church, it, it lost me. I, oh, I, I love the scene I, in the church. Got a little free bird, and uh, yeah, just all hell breaks loose. What about British television? Any any big shows on BBC like Peaky Blinders or anything like that that you're following? I don't watch television. Interesting. No uh, TV no, at all. No, very very rare. Um, you know, we in fact my television is mostly kids programs. Because you know, we uh, are in a weird moment where it seems like the the lines between TV and film are getting increasingly blurry. When you see guys like Nicholas Winding Refn doing what's essentially like a nine-hour movie for Amazon with uh, Too Old to Die Young, who's to say that's not a... I mean, if people think that Twin Peaks The Return is a movie, like essentially a 17-hour movie by David Lynch, who's to say that Too Old to Die Young is not one as well? Or that, I, mean, any, I feel like any time you have a show where every episode is written and directed by the same creative team, it starts to have the same consistency of vision and flavor as any good movie. So I, I really like seeing all these opportunities opening up for directors in the world of TV. Uh, I, I agree. And, but, but, for example, um, Stranger Things 3, isn't it? I haven't, I've only seen the first two episodes of that so far, and I just didn't go back. Well, um, I will give you some advice for free. Cut and run because season three of Stranger Things sucks ass, and the more I think about it, the less I like it. <laughs> I, we I did, love season um, one. Season one was so oh, much fun, and, great, and it pushed yeah. all my nostalgia buttons, etc. But it, I feel like it is a classic example of diminishing returns, and those uh, those guys, the Duffer Brothers, I think they are they have they're rapidly proving themselves to be limited in the the weapons they have in their in their toolkit and i just think they're going to need to show me more than nostalgia before i i sign on to whatever it is that they do after stranger things yeah i think that um, from the first two episodes you uh, for one thing there was just too much 80s music in it and it seemed that there was long scenes of well it was um like um music videos well, the difference I, I is a, a movie bored. like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has loads of 60s nostalgia, but it's window dressing. It's the backdrop. It's the setting. You're creating a tone, but it's not a substitution for the story. The, the story of this actor who's falling on hard times and trying to rebuild himself and his, and his stuntman is coming along for the ride, that is the feature attraction. But with Stranger Things Season 3... There was nothing about the villains, nothing about the Upside Down. They introduced these paper-thin, one-dimensional Russians that are like laughably simple in their execution compared to, say, Matthew Modine's villain in season one. And then the characters, it's like there's like 150 of them now, and they all talk the same, they all act the same, and they just stand around in circles kind of arguing with each other. They need to kill a few of the kids. I'm sorry, like in season one, <laughs> Barb got killed. And that raised the stakes. And Will was in the Upside Down, which raised the stakes. So there was a sense of danger. Like these kids could get killed by these by these monsters at any given moment. Season three, 
is about as scary as going to the mall and like buying a CD and getting a slice of pizza. It's just, it's total diarrhea. Well, I don't think they're going to be killing any of the kids because that's where the, that's the uh, selling point, isn't it? The last oh, program I did was... If they ever hire me to be the showrunner, I'm just going to go on kid-killing rampage. Um, a, a couple of months ago, I did, um, we um, subscribed to one channel so I could watch the last series of uh, Game of Thrones. And as I was watching that, Chernobyl came on. So I had to rent it, you know, subscribe for another couple of weeks so I could watch the end of that because that is a phenomenal program. Sure, no, and that's incredible. the last one that I watched. That's been one of the big surprise runaway success stories that no one saw coming this year where you have a bunch of Brits not trying at all to do Russian accents <laughs> no, no. doing Chernobyl. It's like, like, it's like Emily Watson and like, you know, it's all, I guess Stellan Skarsgård, he's Norwegian, I think. Is he Norwegian or Swedish? I can never remember. In any event, but you have a lot of Western Europeans who are in there who are, aren't trying to be Russian at all. But you want to talk about just the most gripping, upsetting, just stomach-churning horror imaginable. And there are no monsters. There's nothing supernatural. It's just history. And they just knocked it out of the park. Well, I can remember it as when it happened, you know. Oh, yeah, hell yeah, I was 10 when I, I was a teenager at the time, and I, I can remember the fear of, you know, not being allowed to go outside and um, because of um, acid rain and all that. So that's still with me. So um, this is the first time I've seen the the whole story, so I would highly recommend that series. 100%. I completely agree. That's definitely... I, I love it when a show or movie comes out of nowhere that no one saw coming, no one asked for, there's no anticipation, and it just floors you, and you're just like, oh my God, this is, I had no idea I needed this in my life, and I welcome it. So yeah, Chernobyl, they just absolutely crushed it. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most beloved pop culture icons of the 20th century. I would argue that this character is as widely known as Batman, Superman, Godzilla. I mean, there's, I feel like there's certain pop culture icons that you can go anywhere in the world, and if people haven't read the books or haven't seen the movies or haven't played the games or haven't read the comics, they still know who they are. And the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong, absolutely fall in that category. There's not a person alive on this planet who doesn't know who King Kong is. And I hadn't watched the first movie in a long, long time. And revisiting it, I was completely, totally caught off guard by just how floored I was by the experience. Because I remembered scenes, and I remembered the special effects, and I remembered the story. But from the moment things really get underway in Skull Island to the moment of the finale of the film, I just was I just kept saying like, oh my fucking god, like this is so much better than I remember. Like, oh my I'm having so much goddamn fun, but 
King Kong. I'll let you handle the the intro. I guess should we talk about when uh, first time you became aware of King Kong? What, do you remember the first time you saw it? I, I can't know. It is one of these films which I saw at such an early age because it was always on television, and that's what uh, you know. It, it was a great way of introducing us to a lot of these older films because, from the point of view of television, it was filler. It was cheap. They could buy it, uh, you know, for a, a very cheap price and just. Saturday afternoon, nothing on. They just show King Kong, and so a lot of um, the great films that I I watched, the horror films, the Universal horrors, they all came from a period. I don't think I was even ten years old, so they've always been with me through my life. And um, so I couldn't tell you when I first saw King Kong, but it's been a constant companion with me. I mean, the first time I saw King Kong was the 1976 Dino De remake, and I remember watching it on TV, pan and scan. And at the time, being totally mesmerized, the scene where King Kong fights the snake, I was totally floored. The scene where he steps on Charles Grodin, it just was seared in my mind. And I revisited the 1976 remake for the first time since I was like a toddler in preparation for this episode. And God damn, it's, I don't know how it's possible that a movie comes out 33 years or 40, 43 years after the original and the special effects are dramatically worse. But the special effects in King Kong, it's, a, it's that perfect harmony of soaring ambition and imagination combined with special effects that for whatever reason, like they obviously have aged, but they've aged in a way where it almost makes them like more eerie and more creepy and more fascinating when you watch them. Like, I think perhaps maybe I like the special effects of King Kong now more than at any other time that I've watched in history because it's such a, like a time capsule of what special effects were capable of at that time, but also just unbridled unrestrained human imagination just completely like cut loose uh, exactly and it's often been said that there's a number of stars of king kong and this model this uh, 18 inch model covered with foam and rabbit fur that is one of the characters of the film and the fact that you know he was made in 1933 and today we still watch him we still believe him and believe in him you know that's revolutionary and the fact that People can't surpass it. That's the weird thing. Like when I'm, Peter Jackson film came out, I was really into it, especially the, the Skull Island stuff. But I wasn't like a King Kong buff. Whereas I know Peter Jackson's a giant King Kong buff. He even recreated the the notorious missing sequence down in the Spider Pit. There are people out there who have like, devoted their entire lives to obsessing over and studying the story of King Kong and all of his multiple appearances. But if you look at Kong Skull Island, or if you look at Godzilla versus King Kong, or if you look at any of his appearances. He's never been better than the 1933 movie, and that's really unusual because a character like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman, as time goes by and people revisit these pop culture icons, they do find ways to reinvent the wheel and surpass what has come before. I mean, I like watching the old serials from the 40s of Batman, but I much prefer to watch The Dark Knight. But with King Kong, no subsequent appearance by him since 1933 has managed to even come close to the, to the first movie. No, um, with any character, you would expect, you know, that in, in any series of films, you'd expect to be peaks and troughs. A couple of years ago, I wrote something about King Kong, and I was, um, the reason I wrote it is because uh, a colleague of mine said that there was, even though she hadn't seen the 1933 version, she said there was no way that it could be better than the Peter Jackson version, because the special effects are better now. So there was no way that this old film could be as good, because it's the special effects. And that's not the case. I mean, we, yes, we can see, we can see a lot of the um, the technique involved in the um, thirty three version, but he is more of a character. He comes more alive then than he ever has with CG or men in suits or in any other way. 
also, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Like, the first one actually knew how to tell a story economically. So, like, I, I've never understood why people take a movie that's tight and well-told and, like, really solidly constructed, and then they say, oh, well, now we need to make, like, a three-hour version of it. It's like, well, maybe your movie would be stronger. Like, when you watch the Peter Jackson version, there's so much fat on the bone and so much nonsense related to the Depression early on before they get on the boat. You watch the 1933 and even with the 1933, you can make a case that the first half, that has some fat on the bone as well. But it's like, they keep things moving. And when things really get moving, I can't remember the last time I noticed like just how exhilarating the circumstances where it goes from like one scenario to another. But it doesn't feel like it's overstuffed. It all feels perfectly like seamless and like inter like seamlessly interwoven together with like one crescendo after another but maybe before we get too deep into the weeds on just how cool this flick is let's wind the clock all the way back to the early days late 20s where you've got these two filmmakers Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. I've heard them pronounced as Shodasak I've also heard just Shodasak but you have these two crazy filmmakers making all these like jungle adventure movies like Chang, a drama of the wilderness, which is absolutely riveting. If you want to see, if you want to see elephants destroy a village, watch Chang because they they destroy a village just down to down to the last atom. Or if you want to see a kick-ass jungle adventure like serial killer movie, watch Most Dangerous Game, where this guy quite literally is hunting humans on an island. These guys were making all these cool movies, and then they decide to make. I mean, think this is only six years into the sound era, and they come up with this special effects like masterpiece but it's got like never in a million years would you think we know while watching it oh they just came up with sound and movies six years prior because the music's incredible the dialogue's great like it's like all of a sudden everything crystallizes and hollywood has got this giant event movie whereas something that would have felt impossible only a couple of years prior uh, well, exactly. And um, a lot of people say about, for example, Citizen Kane, about how the techniques were already there. It's just they needed somebody to bring them all together and use them in, you know, the, take them to another level. Well, that's what happened with Kong. All the techniques were there. You know, um, Willis O'Brien had been making stop motion films for many, many years since uh, the silent era, since 1915. Um, and, and The Lost World had been a huge, huge hit in 1925. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. So everything was there. Music had been written for movies before. Um, you know, the, um, the action films had been made before, but nobody had brought it together in such a way, in such a complete package. Now, what do you know about Mary C. Cooper's early days? Because it, when you're dealing with movie history from the 20s and 30s, there's a, it's hard sometimes to separate the conflicting reports and the fact from the legend. But from my understanding is that Mary C. Cooper started with the image of a giant gorilla atop a building in New York and then worked backwards from there. But what, what, what can you tell us about the early days with just the conception of the story overall and how they came about just bringing together all these different elements and pieces? Well, um, Cooper was um, a remarkable man. We could never cover everything that he did um, on one podcast. You know, He was um, an adventurer. He was, at one time, he was uh, part of the campaign to capture Pancho Villa. He um, got shot down. He was he flew biplanes in World War One. He got shot down twice. Twice his family were told that he died, and twice he came back. Um, he apparently the idea of um, a story involving an ape was there from a very early age. At the age of six, he was given a copy of a book called Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa by Paul Tuchelu. I think you pronounce it. Now Tuchelu um, wrote that the, about the giant gorillas, and he said the natives called them the kings of the forest and said they were invincible. But um, the Chelu 
when he saw them, he thought that they were half man, half beast and hellish creatures. So you can see that was the, the seed of the story. Um, that it was probably already there from the very beginning with Cooper. And the story is, yes, that one day he was in New York and he, he looked up and he, he could imagine a giant gorilla climbing up um, to the, t the highest peak, which at the time probably wouldn't have been the Empire State Building because I think it would Yeah, the Empire State Building was brand new when this movie got yeah, made. Yeah. It was like a great way to kind of cut the ribbon was by having King Kong honor it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, I believe, I've never been to New York, but isn't there a um, King Kong exhibit or something in the... In the oh, there very well might be. I've been to the top of the Empire State Building twice, once when I was a little kid and once in the summer of 07. It's a lot of fun, but I've never seen the King Kong exhibit, but it wouldn't surprise me. But when you're inside the Empire State Building, they have all sorts of... King Kong DVDs and paraphernalia for sale for the tourists because you just you're in line for hours with thousands of people slowly but surely making your way to the top and along the way they're trying to sell you all kinds of swag. <laughs> well, um, he um, in World War Two then he um, he met Ernest B. Schoedsack. I, I mean World War One. You mean? Sorry, World War One. Sorry, yes, yeah. yes, of course. And he met he had, um, Cooper was just coming out of uh, German hospital and he met Schoedsack in Vienna. And they hit it off straight away, and then they met each other again later in um, London. Now, Schultzak is another adventurer. He was um, in a concentration camp for 10 months. Um, he was exactly like um, Cooper. You know, I mean, he was, uh, he was pretty nuts. He was uh, and pretty fearless. Uh, he was a camera operator, and he went to great lengths to get a shot. And you mentioned Chang just now, and there's a shot in there of a tiger running through... Um, through the jungle and then chasing somebody up a tree and then there's a point of view shot looking down as you see the tiger running up the tree and in fact it gets so close to the and camera did, you can see the shadow of the camera did Ernest shoot that shot? Uh, Sack was up in the tree nice. filming that and of course in those days you'd have to crank the um, camera you couldn't just press play and, and go further up he did it all I well, would imagine it seems like Carl Denham and King Kong is totally based on these guys like they're it's, it's a weird thing where it was the end of the era where people were actually discovering the kind of the forgotten corners of the globe. Whereas once upon, I feel like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you could write stories or make movies about just exploring the unknown areas of the map and people would be fascinated. But as we ran out of blank spots on the map, they said, oh, well, we got to make what we don't know a little bit more interesting. So they started adding dinosaurs and creatures. And I like where science fiction and kind of this pioneer spirit collided together. And I feel like in the 20s and 30s, whether you're talking about all these great pulp magazines that guys like H.P. Lovecraft were writing, were writing for, or these kind of movies, but there's this strange sense of... Um, like the spirit of exploration is alive and well in these, and these giant, just giant risk seekers, these risk seeking behavior on the part of the filmmakers. And today when you see these kind of malnourished kids who have spent too much time watching movies, and then you compare them to these guys. I mean, these are guys where they could have a camera on one shoulder and a rifle on the other and spend like a month in the jungle. And when they'd come out at the end of it, they'd have a movie. Well, exactly. And um, there seem to be a, um, not so much an anything goes um, attitude, but we'll, we will try anything. And I think it's um, telling that Shodzak was actually director of photography on Eric von Stroheim's Greed, which, of Damn. course, is one of those films which they threw everything at it. And, of course, yeah. you know, it yeah, Urban really Beats Allberg and Eric von Stroheim had a legendary yeah. battle of wills on that. And Eric von Stroheim, I mean, the movie that remains is cool, but it's about like 10 or 15% of what he claims he originally envisioned. But anybody who makes like a nine-hour movie for MGM, sorry, you're going to lose that battle. <laughs> yeah, you are. 
But uh, jungle movies were um, very popular at the time. Like we mentioned Chang and uh, Cooper and Shodzak also made Rango, which uh, focuses on orangutans and tigers. And there was a film out in 1930 called, I think you pronounce it Ingagi, which was a huge hit. It's and a big it's, lost movie because it's like really, really controversial, isn't it? Well, it, it is, yeah. And I've seen some stills from it. They still exist. And it tells the story of a, a Sir Hubert Winstead of London who goes on an expedition in um, the Belgian Congo and he encounters a tribe of gorilla-worshipping women. And uh, the film, <laughs> I'm assuming that includes mating rituals of some kind? Yes, yes. The film shows a ritual in which the African women were given uh, gorillas to have sex as sex slaves. So, Actually, um, gorillas have really small penises, but that's a little known oh, fact. But okay. yeah, they're they're big, strong. I mean, they obviously they can like they can squash you like a bug, but they have these notoriously tiny penises. So, but nobody's going to say that to their face. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so but the film itself, that Ingagi was um, actually filmed in Los Angeles, and it was all white women blacked up. Oh wow! The, so you know, gotcha. So even so, for I mean, it sounds like a movie that at the time was a huge hit, but even by that by the standards of that time was considered um, a hot potato. It was, yes, yeah. Um, but the still I've seen is of a gorilla holding a woman and, of course, her bare breasts are out and she's draped over his arms. And uh, it was a massive hit. And that's gotcha. what so gorillas gives... and NECA girls together are big box office. <laughs> they are. Just have a look at a few 60s exploitation movies as well. But, uh, yeah, it was that success that um, when um, Cooper went to, well, he was a producer at RKO and he you know, wanted to make this jungle movie about a giant gorilla. They thought, well... People are watching these things at the moment, so um, this is what we'll do. That's fine. Yeah, and also people need to remember this is the pre-code era, and the pre-code era was so different from what came later. I mean, when King Kong was re-released in 1938, tons of scenes got cut because they were considered too violent or too sexy for the production code at the time. But in the early 30s, you could show some nudity. You could show some animals eating humans. I mean, just it was kind of a, the, the wild, wild west when it came to what Hollywood was up to. And you feel it. When you're watching King Kong, it's easy to forget just how hardcore the early 30s were until you get reminded when you see King Kong like eating people or dropping women out of windows. I mean, this is some pretty hardcore stuff. I never grow tired of studying that, that pre-code period. But it seems like also with King Kong, a lot of different things happened at once that made it possible where you had... Uh, remind me who did the stop-motion special effects on King Kong. Um, what's it? Uh, Willis, Willis O'Brien. Yeah, Willis O'Brien. He was working... was in a movie called Creation that he was already working on. And they basically said, like, press pause there, like, let's scrap that. We're going to bring all the work you've been doing on this other stuff, and we're going to bring it over here. And so they kind of combined a bunch of different elements. And I, I love these happy – movie history is filled with all these great happy accidents where it's not like they had this perfectly conceived idea ahead of time, but suddenly just a lot of things started falling into place. Well, Willis O'Brien was a, another adventurer, just like Cooper and Schultzak. He was a, a fur trapper. He worked on the railroads. He was a, um, a ra- um, he took part in rodeos. I don't know what you call a person who takes part in rodeos. A uh, rodeo. Call, call him a cowboy. I don't know. Cowboy, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Cowpuncher, rodeo clown. I don't, I don't, know. I, I don't I, know. I've been I've been to two rodeos, but my knowledge of the rodeo world is very limited. <laughs> but yeah, and he was also a boxer. Um, and he was interested in dinosaurs from a very, very early age. And he made his first film called Missing Link, A Prehistoric Tragedy in 1915 um, for $5,000. And it was based on that that Thomas Edison hired him to make um, a number of short films. And these were all stop motion animation. So there was no, I don't think it was, uh, to start off, there was no um, live action. It was just uh, stop motion. And he made a film, um, RFD 10,000 BC. I'm not sure what RFD stands for. I don't know if that's an American term. 
and also a one which is called a fantastic name prehistoric poultry <laughs> which and you can see these on um, YouTube so I'll have to post some of these in the next couple of days because they are, you know, they are interesting. They are quite funny as well. Yeah, I mean, he's also he's the Ray Harryhausen of the 20s and early 30s. I mean, Ray Harryhausen's a visionary and a poet of special effects. But without guys like this to carve the way and kind of show how it's done, Ray Harryhausen, his his output would have been different. Well, um, O'Brien was um, Harryhausen's uh, mentor because they were together on Mighty Joe Young together. Beautiful. And um, it, it, it was um, Harryhausen's, I think, first film, and he learned everything he had from, as he called it, Obi, Will, um, Willis O'Brien. But, um, yeah, I guess the only fatal flaw about stop motion is the lack of camera movement, and you have to be really clever about your shot composition and your editing to make people forget that the camera's locked in one place. But what I love about King Kong is that Wilson O'Brien, they use this incredible sense of depth of field in so many shots where you're seeing, obviously with like rear, rear projection and a variety of different techniques, where you're seeing your actors in the foreground, and then you're seeing some jungle footage, and then you're seeing like dinosaurs in the distance, but it creates this incredible sense of space, like you're exploring this vast landscape. And it, I, I completely overlook the fact that the camera's locked in place for all these shots. Or just like when King Kong, T-Rex are fighting, have all these incredible wrestling moves. I know that Mary C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shoshak were apparently wrestlers as well. <laughs> like anything else <that> <laughs> macho, they were doing it. And they acted out the whole wrestling scene that they wanted to be captured in the scene. But I love how this movie uses a bunch of different tricks to make us overlook the fact that the camera never moves when these giant monstrosities are rampaging. Well, I've seen some of the original um, footage for um, for creation. I'm not sure if it was from the original film or a uh, a tester to show um, you know the, the producers what um, O'Brien could do. And I have to admit, it, it is it is quite boring because the camera is still for long periods. Yes, it looks lovely, the uh, animation and everything, but it it doesn't do anything. And in fact, that's what um, Cooper said. He thought that the the idea behind creation was great, but the story was boring and the um, the way that it was coming out, which, and it was very, very expensive. They only co- uh, filmed 20 minutes and it cost $120,000. So, uh, you know, he, he, I think that's what Cooper needed. I'm not, sorry, what O'Brien needed was somebody like Cooper and Schultzak with all these wild ideas, um, you know, to say, look, this is what we want to do. You go off and do it. And um, some of the special effects are fantastic the way that they do it and, and, to, and you said like the, the sense of depth for example they would have the camera then they would have a table in front with some perhaps some bushes or some ferns on it then they'd have a matte painting to um, produce uh, perhaps a frame of it and then another matte painting a bit further so they tighten in the frame and then they would have the tables with all the animation on it and then behind that they would have another matte painting and then behind that they'd have the background so all this incredible uh, work involved in just producing depth never mind because we haven't even moved one character yet and yet you know and then of course it's the editing the editing is so quick and i think that the music as well all everything combined it's just you know you you forget that it is one static shot and then another static shot but then again look at star wars the original star wars 1977 the camera doesn't move much in that at all it's all static shots and yet because of the editing because of the music you get a sense of excitement so i think it's the same thing but um, yeah, you st- the special effects in it are um, amazing, and some of the things they were doing, they were making it up as they went along. They um, there were moments when they would split the screen, so they would film uh, the perhaps, like, for example, King Kong bursting through the gate. They would um, film that, then they would film the natives running away, and they would split it and combine it in an optical printer. Um, there was scenes where 
you would have um, a rear projection. So in the uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex fight, which I think took seven weeks to complete. Yeah, that's what I read. Seven weeks to Seven film. weeks, yeah. Or it was either that or the pterodactyl scene. Because they said the pterodactyl scene was actually the hardest one to shoot. But they just... I mean, it, it, what's funny is that like when you watch a movie where they put a lot of work into the special effects, you never want to feel like they're just showing off all the hard work they've done. It always needs to be in the service of the story. And there are movies where you're like, oh, y'all are just showing off this beautiful ship you built. You're showing off this giant monster you designed, but the story's not working. But with Godzilla, not Godzilla, King Kong, <laughs> the story's flowing so quickly and it's so thrilling and so exhilarating watching King Kong have a, having that battle with that snake creature that he's whipping around like a lasso and battling the T-Rex and battling the pterodactyl and he's thumping his chest after each victory. It's so fast-paced that um, you just you, you feel just like adrenaline surging through your body because you realize, oh, I'm in the hands of storytellers who get spectacle. They get excitement. They get a sense of pacing. And there's so many bloated, rigid, just overstuffed monstrosities that get released today that are two and a half hours long when they should be an hour and a half long. And I just found myself just giddy with excitement watching one special effects scene just go boom, 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 one to another because they never linger on what they've created. Even that long fight with the T-Rex feels totally justified because it's a fucking T-Rex. It's going to take a while for Godzilla to throw down and beat that thing. Um, King Kong. That's the Godzilla again? <laughs> yeah. Wow, Freudian slip. Got Godzilla. It was King Kong versus Godzilla, or Kong versus Godzilla is coming out next year. So, yeah, we are we are not done with Kong yet. We're not, no. Oh, but that but, scene with the T-Rex just get it, it totally... But I think my favorite fight scene has to be with the snake in the cave, or it's not even a snake. It's got, like, little legs on it, but it's like a snake-like reptile that he keeps just, like, slapping down on the ground and kind of whipping around. And I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful stuff to watch. Uh, yeah, and each time after he, he beats something, he, he sort of plays with it for a few seconds before oh, yeah. throwing it away. With um, the T-Rex, he opens his mouth and closes it. And But going back to what you said about how... It doesn't linger on anything because in the T-Rex fight, you have loads of different methods of and different special effects. But because it's so fast and the editing is so tight, you don't linger on, oh, they did it this way. And then, oh, look how great that is. Because as soon as you notice it, you're already on to the next and the, th- the third shot. So, um, for example, uh, Fay Ray on the top of the, the tree and you can see the, the two of them fight in the background. And then, of course, you've got um, scenes where Fay Ray was actually um, added in... Um, well, what they would do is they'd have a little um, projection, like little screen on the um, in front of the camera, and they would move it one scene at one frame at a time and edit around it. So they would be doing the stop motion around it, you know, and they'd have a oh, huge. I read a funny story about how the, a plant or a flower bloomed because the, the set was part artificial, part real, but they didn't notice that a flower was blooming over the course of a day and they lost an entire day of work because they just failed to notice that the greenery was just doing what it does and kind of moving on its own. And obviously that fucked up all the uh, the little movements of all the characters. But speaking of Faye Ray, has there ever been a better screamer in movie history? I mean, she's on such a roll at this point. She's working with Michael Curtiz. She's working with Showtime. I mean, she does, in the span of a couple of years, Most Dangerous Game, she does um, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum. She does the, what is the other one? Um, Dr. X, and obviously King Kong. But in terms of early 40s, thriller actresses, horror actresses, etc., cetera, Faye Ray, undisputed heavyweight champion of this period. No one else comes close. No, and she was filming King Kong while she was filming um, 
Deadly, was, I can't remember the most, name. Most called. Dangerous Game. Most yeah. Dangerous Game. So um, the, apparently she'd be filming Most Dangerous Game all day and then she put the um, blonde wig on and then she'd be filming King Kong at night and uh, so everybody else was going home. She was away you know, for testing for lights and for special effects. I have to take a moment to pat myself on the back when it comes to a bit of trivia related to Most Dangerous Game. When, my, when I was working as a reader at Phoenix Pictures, I won't mention the creative executive and I won't mention the screenwriter, but I will mention what happened. I was one of the early readers on the uh, screenplay for what eventually became Zodiac. And granted, there are a million people reading the various drafts and offering notes, etc. But I noticed in the screenplay, they kept talking about most, most Dangerous Game and referring to it as this great silent movie. And I had a meeting with one of the creative execs and I said, Most Dangerous Game is a marvelous movie. I love it, but it's not a silent movie. And the creative exec who had a poster for the movie on his wall claiming to be a big fan said, Oh, you're, you're, you're wrong. I was like, I'm, no, I'm not. Like, <laughs> watch the movie. It's readily available. And I had to remind them like two or three times before somebody finally would actually verify and watch the movie to confirm. But, but Zodiac was going, it went through several drafts where it was written in that most dangerous game was a silent movie. And it was that my urging that they finally, that they finally changed it. But it was one of the things where they just would not believe it. It was just a classic example of Hollywood ego where somebody in a very superficial way is claiming to like old movies. And they don't know a fucking thing about it. But anyway, Most Dangerous Game, Criterion put it out on DVD years ago. It's a marvelous movie. I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic movie, yes. And I actually read the uh, the book recently, um, the Zodiac book, the original oh, book. Oh, very cool. Film. Excellent. Yeah, which is, uh, and there's a lot of references to uh, Dangerous Game in that as well, of course. Gotcha. Mm. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about a legendary sequence from this movie that I just learned about recently. Because, once again, I'm very new to all the trivia surrounding this movie. I know that people have spent decades just obsessing over it. But I was floored when I read about this missing sequence, the spider pit sequence. So for people out there who are not aware of what I'm talking about, give us – because there are a couple different versions as to why it got removed and for what reasons and when it got removed and whether or not it could possibly still exist. But give us just the full story of this missing chapter. Because a lot of scenes from King Kong were removed and then rediscovered and put back in. And so what we see is a relatively complete cut with like, because certain scenes like Faye Ray where you can see her nipples through her dress, that was removed in 1938 and then put back in like in 1971 when the movie was restored. But this spider pit sequence has remained missing for now, what, 86 years? Well, yeah, and a lot of people believe that um, Cooper would have um, destroyed it himself because he burned anything like that. He would just burn. Um, the scene starts um, when the sailors are chasing Kong and um, they cross in the log. Um, and, of course, Kong comes back and he, you know, he uh, picks up the log and he shakes it so everybody falls down. Well, what you don't see in um, the, the cut we've got is in the original cut, there was also another dinosaur on the other side of the log which is the reason why they couldn't go back. So they stayed on the log and then they fall down. And once they got to the bottom, a lot of them, you know, stand up and there's a, a giant um, spider coming after them. There's this like crab spider. It looks like a spider, but it's got um, the claws like a crab. Um, there's also a... Um, like a tentacle monster uh, or something? Yeah, octopus kind of spider kind of monster. Yeah, you know. And there's also another one, um, which is a two-legged monster, which you can see climbing up. The, the um the side of the ravine and that later you you see that uh, kong fight you know um, uh, no not kong um uh um driscoll jack driscoll the character um, yeah he that? kind of yeah. He fights it off he, yeah yeah he, and he does, cuts yeah. the rope and he it cuts drops the rope down. and he falls down yeah. or the cuts the vine but um yeah so um the story is that people saw that and it was so horrific that some <laughs> people fainted others ran out of the cinema and so they had no choice to the, the, to take it out 
I've also heard, and Cooper has basically said both in different times of his um, career, he's also said that um, it stopped the story. So that's the reason why he wanted to take it out. Now, in 2005, Peter Jackson took the original script and the pictures that existed and the storyboards that existed, put it together and recreated the scene. And I have to say, it is quite scary. You know, yeah, I, can I enjoyed see why, it. I, I, well, yeah. I watched it last night for the first time ever. And he, uh, Peter Jackson obviously likes this movie quite a bit. He devoted a huge chunk of his career to celebrating it and recreating it. But to do a scene with the tools of that time and try to make it match, it's not a perfect match. But I think if you were to put it in and show it to an unsuspecting audience who had never seen the movie before, only the most savvy moviegoers would recognize that it seems a little too fresh and a little too modern. But it is a pretty good approximation. And I looked at the, the there's a beautiful drawing of the concept art for the scene. And it's just stunningly illustrated. It's absolutely gorgeous. But it just seems like nightmare material and obviously for people who are always looking for lost movies like London After Midnight or like the, the complete cut of Magnificent Ambersons whatever the case may be this is one of those scenes that for film historians is the holy grail of missing footage and just the fact that we know that potentially it might have been the most thrilling horrifying exciting scene in the movie makes it all the more painful <laughs> that, it, that it's missing yeah um, there has been um, a lot of chatter that maybe because it was obviously in the film originally because it was shown to an audience and some people say, yeah, well, maybe preview, it was... For a preview audience, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it was shipped abroad before it was cut out, so maybe in Asia or a lot of films are turned up in South America now and again. However, having watched it, I think that um, it does stop the story because you were so engrossed in the chase. You know, when you've got the sailors chasing Kong, you've got Driscoll leading them, he's, he's the hero, and then all of a sudden he cuts to these other people who... In, in the cut we've got they fall off the log it's very conceivable that they die because we don't know how deep that but I guess uh, it probably was a little reminiscent of I love one of my favorite scenes is that giant dinosaur whose head rises up out of the water chases him around and ends up eating that guy out of the tree you could argue oh well you're at that point you're just like it slows the story down because you're not focused on the central characters but just in terms of the magic of the special effects I would be curious to see it and like I, I remember John Landis, and there's this great interview where Mick Garris is talking to John Landis, John Carpenter, and David Cronenberg about their working hard at that time. And John Landis is talking about how he regretted something he did with American Werewolf in London, where there was a scene that was so horrific and so grotesque that when he was doing preview screenings, the audience reacted with such intensity, and they would they were talking and talking and talking, and afterwards, and he would kind of want to like pause the movie, and say, "Hey, you're missing plot, like you're missing story," and he felt like it was more distracting than helpful but as somebody who likes visceral excitement and likes over-the-top entertainment I, I can't help but be uh, curious I, I would rather have it at a bare minimum just as a, as a deleted scene <laughs> on the DVD so if you want to watch it in there but it's just one of the things because it's lost in our imagination it will always be the most horrific terrifying thing imaginable exactly exactly and I, you know, today they would release it as a director's cut which I would get but I, I, what I mean is I could see why at the time they would think, well, we can take this out. I mean, it's a, I don't know how to say, it's a three-minute um, scene. The, you know, the, the um, arguments to whether we should take it out or not, I, I, can, I can understand them. But for me, I would, God, I would love to be able to see the uncut version and see that scene intact. Not a recreation but to see the original footage as it was. Also, I remember watching Peter Jackson's King Kong. I think I saw it twice or maybe three times in the theater, but I remember when I was watching it, 
during the, his spider pit sequence thinking, that's a really hardcore, terrifying scene, like way more so than any other scene in the movie. Like when the way Andy Serkis dies with that sphincter monster thing with all the teeth, like going, grabbing his arms and going over his head and you're hearing his screams as it slowly takes him down. It's horrifying stuff. I think way more powerful than anything else in the movie. And I think it's just one of the things where Peter Jackson, as a filmmaker, just said, this is a challenge. This is one of the greatest lost scenes in movie history. I'm going to go just go for it and create the most horrifying thing that I possibly can as a way of scratching that itch. It's a scene he'd always wanted to see, never been able to see, so he finally just got to he got to create it twice, once for his movie and once for his 1933 recreation. Yeah, you've got to ask the question though, would he have put it in and would it have been so graphic if the original sequence was uh, survived in the original film because that is very very scary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, there's yeah, a know. scene in it. I mean, obviously, this is Peter Jackson's interpretation of it, but there's, there's a scene where the spider actually looms up over one of the characters, and I thought this is, you know, this would freak 1930s audiences out completely. You know, it's freaking me out in 2019. Yeah, but I guess, but those pre, some of those pre-code movies, whether they're t- describing like uh, like the horrors of like heroin o- abuse or prostitution, like there are a lot of hard-hitting, hard-punching early 30s movies. I think it's a mistake to assume that all these people were naive and innocent because, as we're seeing, a lot of these filmmakers at the time they'd survived the horrors of World War One. They like as you mentioned, they'd been shot down in battle, and I think they were probably made of t- tougher stuff then we give them credit for. Granted, they probably hadn't seen as many crazy movies, but they had experienced real-life things. They were experiencing real-life horrors of the Great Depression. So I imagine there would have been a subsection of the audience that would have really responded to it in a positive way. But it's, it's, for film historians, it's obviously always fun to play what if and to imagine what might have been whenever there's just no way to, to ever know. Exactly, and it, it's one of these things that we can all dream about, um, that one day you would turn out. I always remember in a... Um, uh, a discussion with I think it was the composer Carl Davis and Kevin Brownlow about uh, Napoleon, Abel Gans's Napoleon, and uh, he said um, Carl Davis said uh, every so often I would get a phone call saying I found an extra five seconds, and he'd have to go back and redo the whole score again. Well, that's what it's all about. It's all digging and you know trying to find out you know what's what's underneath. There was a cinema a couple of years ago that they um, they dug up the floor and they found old canisters of old films. That's what we want, in, you know, and that's what we want through the spider sequence. 100%. Well, let's talk about the story some, because we haven't talked about the screenplay or really any of the performances, but obviously Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham, he's one of these great adventurer filmmakers, and he's got so many great lines early on that I was scribbling down as I was watching it. <laughs> a great bit early on where he says, uh, he's actually shooting the screen test for, uh, for Andera himself, and he says, ever since I made a trip to Africa, I'd have got a swell picture of a charging rhino, but the cameraman got scared. The darn fool, I was right there with a the rifle. Seems he didn't trust me to get the rhino before he got him. I haven't fooled with a cameraman since. I do it myself. I just love that he is a true adventurer who picks up the camera, shoots it himself, and he travels to just unknown parts of the world, not really knowing what he might get, just assuming that if he's got a great-looking girl in an exotic location, there'll be something that he can market or exploit or sell when he comes out of it. So I just, it's not not necessarily the most complex role I've ever seen on the the screen, but it's hard to forget the character of Carl Denham. He's fantastic. He is, and um, you get the feeling that, um, well, this is the first film he's actually had to take a woman um, to um, to make it in one of his films because there's a couple of very knowing lines at the beginning when he says, uh, you know, the critics tell me that if it had a romance in it, it would gross twice as much. And uh, there's another one where they say, well, why do you want a girl? And he says, because the public... 
bless him. You yeah, know, he, he, he's a very noble money. Film. And when he finds the ape, he's like, "Well, this ape's worth more than all the pictures in the world." It's like he doesn't even really like movies that much. He just likes to make money, and he uses movies to make money. But it's interesting. We always think of filmmakers as these people who are craftsmen, who are artists, who like they give their right arm for the opportunity to make their dream project. But Carl Denham is just. A, a businessman who happens to use the media f- medium of film to try and fill the coffers. I don't know. I, I had never thought of him as um, going for the money. It, it, for me, it was, he seems like the type of character who wants to have adventures and then tell the world, listen to my adventures. You know, he wants to be the center of attention. A little bit like Tom Cruise today with all this Mission Impossible movies. Exactly. And, and Top Gun movies. Like, I'm going to be flying a jet. I'm going to be jumping off buildings. Come check out what, how cool I am at age 59, still doing all this shit. Well, that's, that's um, uh, I can't remember his name now, um, Denham, isn't it? You know, but um, we, we said earlier on about um, the, um, the two people, we had Shosak and Cooper, but Shosak's wife actually wrote it and she was the one who brought it all together, Ruth Rose. And I think that you've already alluded to this. Um, Denham is Cooper. Driscoll is most certainly um, uh, is Shosak. Who was, you know, in real life he was six foot six and he was an adventurer himself. He met his wife, Rose, uh, um, Ruth Rose, on a ship for going to an expedition, ex- yeah, expedition. And then, um, of course, you know, in King Kong, Driscoll meets Starro and they fall in love on the ship. So there's all, you know, these autobiographical Wasn't there a screenwriter who died and most of his stuff didn't make it in, but they gave him credit because he died while trying to help him bring it all. Was that Edgar Wallace? Was, was Edgar Wallace, one? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a couple of people who um, had been involved beforehand. Uh, but and of course, Kepa producer saying, David Oselznik, uh, he came up with the idea of King Kong. They had a bunch of different titles, but he was one of the last things he did before he left the company was he said, oh, you should call it King Kong. It just shows that when you're making a movie, if you're open to good ideas from a variety, like you should never be one of those like filmmakers who just has like an open door policy to everything where the movie, like you don't have no vision of any kind. But it seems like Cooper and Shodzak had confidence in their vision but if they heard a good idea or if somebody had a good idea to bring to the table they'd seize it like oh fuck yeah right, give me some of that i'll take some of that and they're just picking and choosing the best ideas from a, a variety of people yeah and the best um, people as well to um you know to do what they get all the ideas you know into one package and i think that's what um, ruth rose did is they had so many ideas and there's so many ideas coming left and right that wasn't coming together into a screenplay and she was the one who who molded it so, uh, you know, she's often forgotten when people, they never mention. Well, I, I, I wonder if she was the one who wrote that scene where he's like, uh, what's his name? Uh, John Driscoll says, say, I guess I love you. She's like, what, Jack? You hate women. He's <laughs> like the least romantic love scene ever written. But when you watch it, it just it, it puts a smile on your face. It makes you laugh. It's very, very quaint and old, old fashioned. It is. And she did write the final line as well. It's not the planes that killed him. It's it was beauty. beauty killed the beast. Oh, it's great. I'll never forget yeah, when I saw the Peter Jackson one in the theater, when they used that line in the movie, somebody stood up and went crazy and was applauding. And if they were going to use that line, they probably should have followed the example of the screenplay and made it much tighter and much more condensed. I mean, I can't remember what the running time of the Peter Jackson movie was, but after all those Oscars for Return of the King, his ambition and his ego was enormous, and I think he just uh, overdid it. And yeah, you forgot you can have all the great special effects in the world, but if you don't, don't have a tight economic story, you're going to be... I guess I shouldn't be too critical, because the King Kong movie did make piles of money, and people did really enjoy it. I just don't think that 
80 years from now, people will be watching the K Peter Jackson King Kong, whereas I imagine as long as there are moving images projected on screens on a computer or a phone or TV or theater or whatever, people will be watching the 1933 King Kong forever. I think so, yes. And I, I, I haven't seen Peter Jackson's version for a couple of years, but I think it seems to take about almost an hour before you actually see Kong which seems like a long time and it and it did at the time it it really you really had to wait and uh, it, we had to wait like 45 minutes don't you in this one correct it, it is and when you think of it it's only 15 minutes difference and yet i think this is so much tighter and there's a lot more humor involved and uh, you know the love story as you say it's it's not a romantic love story whereas in peter jackson's version you know when I mean, she's doting over him all the time and uh, you know it, it's a bit soppy whereas uh, in this original version, it, it, it's got certain beats that it's got to hit at certain points, and it hits every single one of them. Well, one thing I really dig about this flick is how you can really see the hand of the creators with pretty much every single moment of King Kong and how little imperfections like seeing his fur kind of wiggling and moving in between. You know, because they're obviously moving the, the, the model around for all these shots, but you can see the hand of the artist and just little moments like when he looks in the window and he's looking for Darrow toward the end and he's climbing buildings and he's already <laughs> chucked one girl like over his shoulder when he finds the wrong one. But the way his eyes wiggle when he's looking in the window and he has so much personality. And I think the big problem with Peter, Peter Jackson's movie is that they try to make him look like just a fucking gorilla. And King Kong in the 33, he just... He doesn't look like a gorilla. He just looks like a, like this crazed monster with all this kind of delightful, devilish personality. And just the way his teeth are constructed, the way his eyes, but the eyes are everything. And they just, they gave him so much personality. And I just, I love watching him wiggle around. Yeah, um, I remember one of the, um, the stories that was that when the RKO executives saw him for the first time and they saw his fur moving they thought oh this is so bad this is so amateurish nobody's going to buy it but when the critics saw it they thought the special effect is so good you can even see the wind going through the gotcha. fur gotcha very nice <laughs> like yeah that's your imagination filling in the gaps exactly exactly and um I, I, the sound effects in it are amazing because uh, apparently his roar was a tiger's roar backwards and a lion's roar forwards combined together and the, I can't remember the name of the um, sound designer now. I think Spivak, I think his name was. And he said that the, the, what he called the love grunts were, was just him grunting through a microphone. Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I think that, as you say, it's got so much personality. The music of it, because we haven't actually really mentioned the music yet. It's Max Steiner. Steiner, correct? Yes, he was, yeah. Who would and go was, on to be one of the all-time great Hollywood composers. I think, I mean, he's one of those guys who <laughs> composed, like, let me, let me look him up. I think he has, like, 200 film scores oh, or something yeah. completely insane. But you, you could call him, like, the John Williams of his era, or you could call him whatever, but he's just, he's the Max Steiner of his era. But there's, like, I remember when I was first getting into old movies in college, and I was watching a lot of Warner Brothers movies, and I was like, God damn, he did every single score for, for, <laughs> for, all, for all these movies. Max Steiner has 397 music department wow. credits. Wow. That, that's, a, that's a lot. Of, and Oh, and as well, sorry, those are his music department credits. As composer, has two hundred and forty-one. So, yeah, well, he, he he wrote quite a bit of music. Yeah, well, for um, for King Kong, RKO didn't want him to write anything. They wanted him to use existing music and just mold it around the story. And it was Cooper who said, "No, that's not going to work." So it was Cooper who paid Steiner fifty thousand dollars and said, "Use the money, go and get an orchestra, compose something." And uh, I think it was a 46-piece uh, orchestra they had. And in the end, uh, RKO did reimburse Cooper. 
Yeah, that was smart. And I, I love how, like, when you read about how, what an event this was when this movie, they, when this movie opened, how they had the two biggest theaters in New York booked at the same time, where they could basically have, like, 10,000 people per showing watching this movie across town. And they'd have, like, a Broadway show beforehand. I mean, they just made it, like, an evening of entertainment. And but what's crazy is that as beloved as it was and as big a hit as it was, it was only the number four highest grossing movie of the year. So it was like an instant hit, an instant smash. But yeah, I, I don't even know what the movies were that were in front of it. But um, let me see, 1933 box office. Well, I've got his box office as 5.3 million. Uh, bang, boom, 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 top. Ah, oh, damn it. Uh, I should have looked this ahead of time. All right, well, I, I'm not going to go looking for this while recording. I should have looked this up ahead of time. In any event, it was the number four box office movie of that year, but um, God, what the fuck? Oh, here it is. Okay, so Cavalcade, she done him wrong. Oh, she done him wrong. That makes sense because it had uh, Mae West, Little Women, State Fair, and King Kong. This is the, and then 42nd Street, Gold Diggers in 1933, I'm No Angel. It's another Kim Mae West, Tugboat Annie, Footlight Parade. I mean, it's a huge, huge year for movies. You got Ecstasy with Hedy Lamar getting buck ass naked. You got George Keeker's Dinner at Eight. You got Marx Brothers with Duck Soup. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a killer year. I might actually have to do. Uh, uh, 1933 episode. Uh, yeah, episode because there's, there's so many good Hollywood movies to uh, to sink our teeth into from that year. Well, and then to think, I mean, all these great movies and all this great box office, and this was in the middle of the Depression. Yeah. And, the, and it wasn't like, I know everybody focuses on 1929 and said, because that's where the crash happened. But of course, it wouldn't hit people's lives until a few years later. So I would imagine this would be the very pit of the Depression. I mean, also during the Depression, one of the things that kept people going was that for a very little amount of money, you could go buy a ticket and watch like four or five movies in a row and get your newsreels, get everything. You could just you could just chill in there and hang out. And it's like just a place to go. And seeing Joan Crawford at the height of her fame and stardom, you know, for a lot of people, is wish fulfillment. There's a weird thing in the 30s where you had so much glamour and so much elegance. And because people were so like racked with abject poverty, that these visions of people wearing all these diaphanous gowns and going to black tie functions, it was like their Marvel Cinematic Universe getting to step into another world. So it's, I think, yeah, it's funny how in the 30s, elegance was never more prominent in movies than during that time period when people had the least amount of elegance in their lives. And of course, with King Kong, you could, it's almost the opposite because you could actually see King Kong stamping on people with their um, tuxedos. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he, he throttled the elegance and, uh, and attacked New York. So, is this the best giant monster movie ever made? It is for me, yes. It's, for me, it's um, top five film I've ever seen. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I've, it's, as I said at the beginning, it's been with me all my life and I think it will remain with me all my life. And it was a pleasure to, even though I haven't seen it for about maybe two years or something like that, to watch it this week again, it was an, a pleasure. Every now, what would time. you say are the close, are there any close rivals for that, for the, the distinction of best monster movie ever? Because obviously there are a lot of people out there who love the 1954 Godzilla. You could probably make a case that Jaws is a giant monster movie, but I, I feel like that's more just, it's just a big ass fucking shark. Not a supernatural shark, it's just a big ass shark. If it had been a little bigger, it might be like in the same family as like Godzilla or King Kong, but I don't know. Do you think Jaws qualifies as a giant monster movie? Um, I suppose it's you know in uh, and, I, and I do love those films and in fact I we saw I saw Jaws in the cinema this week for the very first time on the big screen. Nice. Um, so um, it's one of those films you got to go back to. I would say I mean I do love monster movies and even though they I think the King Kong is the greatest and if you want to include Jaws I would include it alongside King Kong, but I, I love films like um, Alligator, 
I believe okay. it's King Kong. <laughs> and, uh, well, what you know. genre is King Kong? Because I see people listening to it as horror all the time. But for me, when I watch it, it doesn't feel like a horror movie. It's a strange mix. It's, it's like an adventure movie. It's a movie about show business. It, it just, I don't even know where it fits. It, but it feels like it has more in common with these wild, can't even really put it into words, but these nature exploration adventure movies as opposed to horror. When I think horror from the 1930s, I think Old Dark House, and I think Invisible Man, and I think Frankenstein, I think Dracula, I think Freaks. Like Those are horror movies. King Kong, for me, is so much fun and has so much action and so much thrills and so much excitement. I have a hard time placing it in the horror category. I've got no problem with placing it as a horror because horror is such a wide category anyway. I think that we do like to narrow it down to certain things, but I think horror is so wide um i think of it the reason i love it so much is because it is such kick-ass action and i think that in that respect it was ahead of his time because you don't see a lot of uh action films around that period you know they started much much later and when if you see or much earlier with all the douglas fairbanks things exactly, like exactly. arabian nights and mask of zara in the early 20s you did have these action adventure movies like rob i mean douglas fairbanks was you know, pick any current example of an action star he was like the fucking Dwayne Johnson of the, of he the was, early he was, 20s yeah, yes. he was doing all kinds of th- crazy things but if you if you take a, you know account the um, the fight with the T-Rex uh, you can't imagine if that was two people they wouldn't fight like that in the 1930s throwing them over their shoulders and you know you you in the boxing scenes in the night a lot of films in the 1930s it was straight on straight punch trying to punch the nose and that's about it whereas of course King Kong, he takes a few side swipes and, you know, you could tell that um, O'Brien was a boxer because, um, you know... It, it might be the best fight scene of the 1930s, I mean, in terms, uh, of, in terms of actual choreography. Oh, you know, I, I know that um, fight scenes have come a long way and I'm a huge lover of especially um, martial arts movies, but I would say it's one of the greatest fight scenes ever. Yeah. In terms, of, in terms of your involvement and you really, really feel for Anne up in that tree, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, Faye Ray, she's definitely the secret weapon of this movie. And she's not just a great screamer. She's so stunningly beautiful and has those giant eyes. And she's just the master of doing these. Like, it's almost like something from the silent era where she can lie back on a couch or lie back anywhere. But just these expressions of complete abject terror. It reminds me a little bit of like Elsa Lanchester's Bride of Frankenstein when she you know, shrieks in horror at the, when she meets Frankenstein's monster for the first time. But that silent era expressiveness Fay Ray absolutely has it and she's just she's just a marvel to watch on screen she is she is and what I've always liked about her is that you know 50 years later she was still happy to talk about King Kong which a lot of people would have gone oh well I've also done this and I've done she never did that she embraced the role and she knew that is what the uh, her fans the audience you know loved about her and she embraced it and I, I think that's you know that's really really nice to see because people are afraid of typecasting she didn't seem to be All right, well, let's talk a little bit about some of King Kong's other appearances in pop culture because he's appeared all over the place in the interim. He had a sequel that year with with the Son of Kong. Son of Kong, yes. Yeah, and then he obviously, there have been like a lot of not-so-subtle remakes of it, and then he got licensed off to the Japanese. So let's talk about some of the the honorable mentions and dishonorable mentions when it comes to King Kong. So what are some of your favorite appearances of King Kong since 1933? Oh, my favourite. Um, there's not that many. <laughs> I, I, um, I do like the Peter Jackson version, although it is way too long and too baggy, as you say. I've never actually shown it to my children because I know at that running time, 
they would they wouldn't be inter- they would lose um, interest you know before they even got to Skull Island. I suppose what I should have to do is press forward with it until that moment, and they might enjoy it. Also, quick question for you: It's a weird thing where when I watch people reacting to stop motion effects in 1930s, they've it's aged like wine for some reason. But when you watch people running from CGI like brontosauruses, it ages like yogurt it's just like ugh. like for whatever reason i don't know why so many computer generated effects age really poorly and they are they're horribly dated and they look awful something about the tactile like 3d physical quality of stop motion makes them age incredibly well and that's pretty rare for special effects it is but i think it's also in with regards to king kong you know have you seen son of kong I've not, no. No, it's not very good, you know. Um, <laughs> I've, yeah. never, I've never heard anybody you, mention it in a positive it's, way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do remember for years I thought, you know, the end of T2 in Judgment Day when Arnie goes under um, uh, into the hot molten uh, metal and he gives a thumbs up and then he disappears. For years I thought that was uh, uh, looking back towards the son of Kong because that's kind of how Kong dies at the end. Gotcha. You know? he, he sinks, and but he, it's not quite the same because I think he's holding up a ship. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a good movie. It was rushed. The script is not very good. It's it doesn't really move. So I think one of the reasons it was we cheap cash grab. Yeah, it was you know, and it was released the same year. So that's how quick that you know the turnover was, and you're never going to have um, the same quality if you rush it like that. Um, but I think one of the reasons why King Kong has survived is because of all the elements coming together and working. Whereas you know. They tried to reproduce it a couple of years later. Well, that's that same year, and it didn't work. I do like Mighty Joe Young, though. The um, what year was that? It was nineteen forty nine something like that? I can't remember exactly. Um, and and I do like that film, even though that was a flop at the time. But in regards to the new ones, what do you think of the nineteen seventy six? Because I just revisited that, and Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges and Charles Grodin—they all give it their all, and Jessica Lange is so fucking hot in it that I just sat in front of the TV screaming like a crazy person. She is her own special effect. She is just stunning. And you do have that scene where King Kong's kind of like pulling her dress down. You get to see her boobs and, you know, woohoo. But I thought the mo- I thought everything about the movie was okay except for the special effects themselves, which were so awful and so embarrassing and so stupid. And the whole Skull Island world feels so empty and desolate when he finally like throws down that snake i was thinking to myself finally he actually encounters a a monster the 1933 one is just this island filled with all these unimaginable horrors lurking around every everywhere you turn something horrible is about to fucking eat you crush you kill you dismember you and then the, the 1976 it's like Kong's the only guy on the entire island, and it just feels so fake and artificial. I, I, I pretty much hated everything about the 1976 when it came to the execution of the actual special effects. Yeah, it, it, it's not so much an action film. It's more, I think they tried to make it into a love story, didn't they? And, you know, the, once they try and force that on, which, again, is something that Peter Jackson tried to do by, yep. you know, make it, um, by forcing that love story, it doesn't work so well. Whereas with Fay Ray, she was terrified throughout... And yet we could still see the spark, especially, you know, from Kong's point of view. Whereas when you try and reciprocate that, you know, from, when both sides, you know, uh, the um, whatever, car- I can't remember the name of the character in uh, the 76 version. But, you know, when she looks at him lovingly and then when uh, uh, Naomi Watts looks at Kong, lov- it, I, to me, that doesn't work. It, it feels... And once again, it's too long. I think the 76 yeah. one's two hours and 20 minutes. It's like every time they make it. these movies, they get a little longer. It's like, go back to... One hour forty. Hour forty is just right. 
Exactly, exactly. You know, we should have more one hour 40 movies. I think my favorite moment, though, of King Kong outside of the 1933 one is this great little scene in the Yellow Submarine movie from the late <laughs> 60s where a really well-designed King Kong looks in through a window and he just looks gorgeous. And like they just the artwork in Yellow Submarine is some of my all-time favorite artwork in any movie I've ever seen, and they just kill it. He looks so unusual and so different, but that's probably my favorite homage. But also I found a great Superman comic uh, number, what is it, 128... I was introducing Titano the Super Ape, but on the on the cover, Superman says King Kong was only a make-believe gorilla. Titano is real, and his kryptonite vision prevents me from capturing him. In any event, old school Superman from way back when, back when comics still only cost ten cents. So even in the pages of DC Comics, King Kong was uh, getting ripped off. Yes, and of course he's. Um, you know, we've had uh, Kong Skull Island a couple of years ago, and next year we're going to have Kong versus Godzilla. What do you think of Kong Skull Island? Um, oh, I'm kind of... He's gotten way bigger. Like in the movie, <laughs> yes, 1933 yeah. one, one thing we haven't mentioned is that King Kong is different sizes depending upon the scenes. And it's one of the things where Marion C. Cooper just said, fuck it, whatever the scene calls for, that's how big we're going to make him. But sometimes he's 18 feet tall. Sometimes he's 60 feet tall. But depending upon where he is and what they need in the shot, Kong's size changes dramatically throughout the movie. Yeah, but you don't really notice because you saw... I, I didn't notice at all the, until I read no, reading no. that IMDb trivia. I was like... Well, okay, that that makes sense. But when in in comparison to the rest of the Empire State Building, eighteen feet, he would just be a dot. So you you got to make him bigger. But if for a close up where he's shoving somebody in his mouth, I get why they kept changing him. But I, I had no idea until I read that little factoid. No, 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 I didn't realize that. And they say it's not something you notice. Um, Skull Island, though, I I'm kind of torn with it because on the one hand, I realize that it's it is a load of crap. However. I've seen it twice now, and I've been entertained twice. So it's one of those films that, you know, as long as you disengage your brain, you can enjoy it. I did have fun with it. I thought they tried a little too hard with the humor with John C. Riley's character, but Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston, I thought both were uh, totally fine. I thought Samuel Jackson was good. And I did like that first scene where the helicopter driving the battle with Kong. He's, I mean, obviously they had to make him ridiculously large so that when he and Godzilla finally face each other, they'll be on equal terms. But how did they handle that in the the Japanese one? I can't remember. How does how does how does Kong get increased in size so that he and Godzilla can throw down? Ooh, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Um, and then obviously it's got the great one with like the over the shoulder throws and uh, yeah. the bit with the uh, the tree being shoved down the mouth and all that stuff. And people love that movie. It's two people in rubber suits wrestling. But, but if you that's like the, those kind of movies, then that's, that's the one that starts with um, some advertising executives, isn't it, who go into the island just to get some publicity for a company. I think that's the one, isn't it? I, I can't remember. My, no, my, not, my knowledge matter. of uh, kaiju films is, is very limited. Yeah. But I know that Godzilla over the years I apparently has grown in size as well so absolutely um, he gets a little bigger know, every time they make a movie I, with I, him I don't think it matters really I, you know, I mean they're going to be the same size what I'm um, curious to see with this new version is ultimately both Kong and Godzilla are despite yeah, despite the destruction they cause, they are good guys. Yeah. So I'm just wondering... You know, well, at least they uh, are in the context of this new legendary monster-verse that they're trying to be depicted as these elemental forces designed to keep like evil things at bay. So they'll probably fight each other and then team up. It'll be like Batman versus Superman. They'll fight, then they'll become yeah. pals, and they'll fight. But one thing is that this whole legendary monster-shared universe starting to fall to pieces because Godzilla, the king of the monsters, underperformed. They're expecting it to be this runaway smash success. I don't know if the audience for giant monster movies 
is actually that big. And the reason in the 50s and 60s that Japan got to make so many of them, they were super low budget. They didn't have to make a lot of money. But as soon as you start getting these Pacific Rim movies where the budgets are astronomical and these legendary movies where the budgets are astronomical, they got to perform like Marvel movies in order to justify that cost. And Godzilla, King of the Monsters definitely took a giant dump. Well, I didn't even see it myself, you know. Um, it, it All right, so as a monster yeah. movie fan, if you didn't go, that's, no. a, that's a huge sign that there's a, a big problem at hand. It, it is, it is. Um, and it, anyway, I will watch it eventually. And I am curious about seeing Kong and Godzilla together. That is, you know, a matchup made in heaven. But um, I think that um, I'll, I'll wait to find out, you know, if it's any good first. Well, like Batman v Superman underperformed these gimmicks. It has to be more than a gimmick. Batman v Superman, it was great to see them on screen together, and it, it started their whole Justice League thing, but it also had this ridiculously convoluted, unwieldy story that was totally incomprehensible and utterly unenjoyable. And I was, I, it was very clearly a poorly written Superman movie that at the last minute had Batman kind of shoved into it. And it's just... I'm all for the gimmick, but you got to have a great script. And if you don't have a great script, you, do, you don't have a movie. And we're going back to the 1933 King Kong. It's so efficient and it's so focused and it's so tight and it, it knows what it wants to be. And they just knocked it out of the park. It, it, obviously, anytime you make a giant monster movie, you're exploiting the gimmick of a giant monster in your movie. But man, I, I might be inclined to agree with you. I can't think of a giant monster movie that surpasses it. Or if there is one, I'd have to think long and hard because I'm not a natural giant monster buff, but no movie immediately comes to mind that I think is a close rival other than the 1954 Godzilla. But I just like the weirdness of Skull Island and the 1933 movies so much that I'd be inclined to agree that King Kong is the stronger movie. Yeah, you're right about Skull Island in the 33 version. You mean how anybody could survive that long? I, I can see why they got that giant wall, you know, and they are happy with that little tiny peninsula, because I would no be no way <laughs> yeah, I'd be crossing yeah. that wall. Yeah, they live on this huge island, but they live on like one percent of it. <laughs> it's like I'd be happy beyond with this wall is nothing but a nightmare land of giant monsters that want to step on us and eat us. Exactly. I wouldn't be. I I wouldn't even want to be the one to take the the virgins or the you know the sacrifices out. Uh, somebody else can do that because uh, it'd be dragons and uh, I don't like that. Yeah, I mean, trying to think of like the last time you saw a Hollywood movie that had the surprise and the fresh appeal and the novelty and just the newness. Like it has that new car smell when you see that island and you see the wall and you you see the monster design behind the wall. I think it's one of the great heroic leaps of human imagination in Hollywood history where it's up there with Star Wars and it's up there with all these movies where it's suddenly a giant leap forward showing you something that you've never imagined before, never thought of before. And I think I've been just undervaluing and underrating and underestimating just how cool it is from a story standpoint as opposed to just a technological marvel. I think I always respected it for its technological marvel, but I really admire it now as a story as well. well I'm so I'm so happy about that because a couple of weeks when I go when I said, um, you know, why do we do... King Kong 1933. Um, you know, I, 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 part of me assumes that everybody's seen it because I've seen it so many times. But I, it gives me a lot of pleasure to know that not only have you, you know, you've seen it for the first time for a long time and you, you've had a, a, such a great time watching it. Yeah, it was a special movie and 
I've said it before in the podcast, something about the early 30s movies, I can't even explain it, I've never known how to verbalize it, but just even the music and the way the credits are written, it makes me feel like I'm high. Like I, 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 Even a bad movie from the early 30s, I always like watching the opening credit sequence because it's such a strange, specific time and place in Hollywood history. I love early 30s comedies, I love early 30s gangster movies, I love early 30s horror movies, I love pretty much anything from the early 30s just because it has a certain Hollywood flavor that I don't know why it appeals to me so much because I, I have no nostalgia for it because I wasn't born until 76. But something with the early 30s just reaches out to me and grabs me and King Kong clearly is one of the, the strongest movies from this period by far. It's, it's funny you say about um, the, especially the, the titles because when I was watching Jaws on the big screen the other day and of course all the titles in Jaws are huge and I was thinking to myself if I ever make a film I'm going to have the screen full with just the title, you know, and that's what Kong does. <laughs> Absolutely. It demands that you sit up and pay attention. It does. Well, it any does. final thoughts on King Kong or any of his subsequent appearances in movies? Because we, we haven't mentioned King Kong Escapes from 1967, but are there any other uh, appearances? King Kong Lives. That, yeah, I, oh yeah, I never saw King Kong Lives. Oh, was that the sequel to the Dina De Laurentiis movie? It is, yes, yeah. How, oh, all right, so do you give, give me the lowdown on that because I, I wasn't even aware that it really even existed. Uh, it, it's been a long time since I've seen it, and I, I've got no desire to go back to see it. You know, I didn't dig it up, and you know, for this, what you know, f do my research for this. I've got no desire to go back. It just, it's a nothing film. There's a great uh, anecdote by Robert Evans in his book, uh, "The Kid Stays in the Picture," when they're talking about making The Godfather, and he's talking to D Dina De Laurentiis. Uh, about possibly being involved and about possibly casting Marlon Brando and Robert Evans go, if you listen to the audio tape or the audio fiction I mean not audio fiction but just it's just it's Robert Evans reading his own his own autobiography but he imitates Dino De Laurentiis saying like oh forget about The Godfather forget about opening in Italy Marlon Brando he's a bad actor let's make a King of Kong <laughs> in the early 70s Dino De Laurentiis really wanted to make King Kong and I, that's one thing I love about Dino De Laurentiis is that he had all these wonderful Federico Fellini masterpieces to his name. But what he really wanted was to make these big, colossal escapist fantasy movies. When he saw Star Wars, his response was Flash Gordon. And he, I mean, King Kong obviously was one, one of his babies. And it was a huge privilege getting to meet him and work with him a little bit on Hannibal. And it's just one of the things where he was such a enterpriser, where he would, or an enterprising producer, where he'd see a trend or he'd see a hit and he'd want his own version of it. And he just kept reinventing himself decade after decade. And just when you think that he's down for the count, he'll come back and produce a movie like Blue Velvet. God, God damn, Dino De Laurentiis, he, he still got it. So throughout his whole entire career, he was always trying to make masterpieces and hits. And he, he's just one of the all-time great producers. So while I hate King Kong 1976, I love Dino De Laurentiis for having the, uh, the balls to at least make the attempt. Yeah, and I can see why people have tried to remake it over and over again. But I think what I would tell anybody is if you haven't seen the 33 version, don't judge it by the 76 version or the 2000 and was it the Peter Jackson 2005 version? You know, don't judge it by any of those. Go and see it because it is special. It is far greater than any of the, uh, anything that's come after it. 100%. Well, what do you got going up on coming up soon on Film 89? Any, any written posts or any podcasts where you need me to pop on and rant and rave while Sky's uh, busy uh, making. Playing house with uh, his his new it was a new baby girl or baby boy that he had um, baby girl yes and, what, and what's her name um, Olivia 
I think he's, yeah, nice. Olivia. I, yes. My little sister's name is Olivia. We call her Miss O, but yeah, it's, o. A, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful name. Yes, yes. Uh, and he's, he's um, shown us a picture and she's a, she looks adorable. Nice. But, future um, yes, cinephile, f- future editor and contributor to Film 89. Exactly, exactly. Hopefully so, yeah. Um, no, I, the last thing I wrote for Film 89 was a review of um, Jim McBride's Breathless. Okay. And Which I'm Tarantino ho- prefers over the Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, I will so say this about the, about the 80s Breathless. Yeah. Really erotic. I mean, the, who's the girl oh. in it who's in all those great... Oh, um, Monica. No, Monica's her name in the film. Um, oh, I forgot her name now. Yeah, but, uh, the, the, but she's in all those great Zulowski films from the 80s as well. One of the most sizzling actresses who oh, ever stepped on screen. She's and, gorgeous. And obviously Richard Gere is one of those one of those beautiful dudes who's almost as pretty as the girls. And so they, they're obviously electric on the screen together. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm with Tarantino. I prefer it over the Jean-Luc Godard um, version. But I'm also hoping in the next couple of weeks, because I'm a big fan of Jim McBride's 80s films, so I'm hoping to do something on um, The Big Easy and Great Balls of Fire as well. So, uh, cool. You know, something coming up soon. Very nice. Well, where can people find your site and your social media and all that good stuff? Well, if they want to read anything, you know, Breathless or anything else, I would go to film89.co.uk where you'll see um, not just my stuff, but um, Sky and Hayden and Neil Gaskin. And um, we've got so many great contributors to it. And, of course, um, all the podcasts as well, which uh, the last one we did was Chinatown with the great Bill Scurry. Um, which um, I believe is his favourite film of all time. So that was uh, a pleasure to to, um, talk that with him. Yeah, I I got to work with Bill recently. We did this uh, short film here in New York recently where we had Bill Tech in the director's chair and Bill Scurry doing sound and co-host duties. And we basically uh, hired a DP, but we ran around the city visiting certain film locations and just doing like wrong reel style rants on those locations. But we also, when possible, tried to recreate some of the shots from the movie. So it's one of those things where Bill Tech's doing the rough assembly now. And we, we shall see how it all turns out. But if it goes well, I plan on doing uh, a lot more of them on my YouTube channel where we do these short films about famous film locations around New York because there are hundreds of them from shows and movies. And we hit seven of them. We had Once Upon a Time in America, 1984, uh, Ghostbusters, They All Laughed, Godfather One, Carlito's Way, Seven Year Rich, and Sweet Smell of Success. But we just had, uh, it, was a, it was a hoot and a half running around town with those guys for two days. Oh, that sounds something like that. I've definitely got to watch. And in future episodes, maybe you can do King Kong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we probably should have, I mean, it's it, such a no-brainer, but it didn't even occur to me because for whatever reason, because King Kong takes place in the world of the imagination, but we could have just, at any point in the city, just spun the camera around to look at the Empire State Building because you can see it pretty much anywhere in the city. Like, all right, there, there it is. Let's talk about King Kong. We wouldn't have even had to go to the location. We could have shot it from anywhere. So, yeah, next short, King Kong would definitely make the cut. Excellent, excellent. Very cool. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating review, all that good stuff. If you want some video content and you want to see my shiny, reflective dome ranting and raving about TV and film, you can find my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. If you want to talk with me on social media, at Colbrex on Twitter is always the best place. But if you take anything away from this episode, just watch King Kong again. If you are an old fan or a new fan, I think you'll find yourself just uh, happily surprised by just how fucking amazing this movie is. But apart from that, I can't think of anything else to offer, so I'll just close with, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>